0: The New York Times published this new fantastic piece on wages. And I think it's a really huge deal. In the piece,
1: it emphasizes the importance of rewriting our stories.
2: And I think the beginning of that story is that a strong economy requires a strong distribution of income. That means that many people are in a position to consume and to spend. And a strong economy begins with wage growth. It begins with workers having more money in their pockets.
1: So Nick, uh today we're gonna to talk about a New York Times editorial titled Let's Talk About Higher Wages, which, as folks know, is one of our favorite subjects. But uh before we get into that, on the topic of wages, you, you actually talked to another podcast slash
0: radio show recently. Yeah, that's right. I was on um uh Marketplace with David Brancaccio talking about the Rand report and the you know the forty-five years of wage suppression that we just Lived through with the economist Carter Price from Rand, who actually did the analysis. David is a very good interviewer, and it went, I think it went super well. And if people are interested, they should just check out Marketplace.
1: And we'll provide a link to that episode in the show notes.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Uh, But today we get to talk to uh, one of our heroes, uh, (laughs) Binya Applebaum, who is a member of the New York Times editorial board. He's the economy and business. Writer for the editorial board and the author of, uh, I think, a really important recent book called The Economist's Hour. Uh, And Binya is not an economist, but he is an expert on economists, which is incredibly useful uh, for our purposes because he really has a great perspective on what the profession has done over time. And uh, the reason we're having him on is, is that the New York Times published this new fantastic piece on wages called let's talk about higher wages a couple of weeks ago and i think it's a really huge deal
1: we could uh, really just shut down the podcast here and just uh, read that editorial out yeah. loud every week because yeah. it it's a it's a great summary of a lot of what we've been talking about over the past couple of years not just in terms of economics and policy but also the importance
0: of telling a better story that's right and you know the i mean there, there's a couple of reasons why it's a big deal the first is it's a very well written i think technically accurate argument about the economy and the need for a story. But I I think the other thing is, is that the New York Times continues to be a very important part of the sort of intellectual and cultural landscape. And they are, for better or worse, you know, kind of the place, they they do reflect a kind of orthodoxy. And for them to move from uh, the position that they had in 1987, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was that the best level for the minimum wage is zero, where they argued in 1987 that the best thing to do would be to eliminate the minimum wage. To move this far uh, is really a quite a remarkable thing, and it absolutely reflects the changing consensus of the economics profession.
1: I think the important thing here, Nick, in contrasting uh, what the New York Times is writing about the minimum wage 30 years ago to what they're writing about it now, is how this story has changed from the old orthodox consensus that the minimum wage is necessarily a job killer that ends up hurting the people it's trying to help, to this new consensus which by the way is based on empirical reality our experience yeah. over the past couple of decades yeah. that in fact the minimum wage is a driver of economic growth that uh, as you say when workers have more money businesses have more customers and hire more workers that is the virtuous cycle of market capitalism that we talk about exactly we see it now as a a, a driver of
0: growth rather than as uh, an to Yeah, that's yeah. right. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, the language in this editorial, and I suppose our listeners will hear us patting ourselves on the back, uh, <laughs> is uh, is is it. totally reflective of this 21st century theory of economic growth that we have been proponents of. That, in fact, you know, they say right here, workers who are paid more can spend more. This is the fundamental law of capitalism. That's how the system works. Yeah, and uh, the idea that uh, a set of policies designed to suppress wages will somehow end up more robust with higher demand—it's just obviously ridiculous. And,
1: and what's amazing is that is that smart, reasonable people believed, believed it for it. decades.
0: No. It's just, decades. It is just astonishing. But I mean, you know, what's really, really cool uh, again about this is that is that this piece reflects a new kind of consensus that I think can reshape our laws, our policies, and our norms in a really positive way. So let's talk to, to Binya Applebaum.
2: I'm Binya Applebaum. I'm the lead writer on business and economics for the New York Times editorial board and the author of The Economist's Hour.
0: Well, Binya, we, uh, we really were struck by the recent uh, New York Times uh, opinion piece called Let's Talk About Wages It wasn't that long ago. uh, In fact, in 1987, the editorial board of the New York Times wrote uh, that the right minimum wage was zero dollars and argued that the consensus was that the minimum wage uh, was an idea whose time has passed. And the distance between these two positions is huge and sort of shocking. And uh, we're very interested in hearing from you how the consensus changed and why the position evolved.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, no one person made that intellectual journey. The people who wrote that piece in 1987 are no longer on the board, and, and probably right. no longer on this earth. But uh, it does mark a really interesting evolution, and and the transition at the Times really tracks an evolution in the economics profession among liberal thinkers uh what you had in the 1980s was really a a conventional wisdom in mainstream economics that that wages basically reflected uh, a form of market justice basically that the market figured out how much a person was worth and that's how much you got paid and if you started messing around with that by imposing a minimum wage standard or by allowing unions to negotiate on behalf of workers or any of these horrifying ideas, any of these horrifying attempts to give power to workers, uh, were distortions that would end up hurting workers because you were taking money out of someone else's pocket in order to put it into the pocket of the worker who was the beneficiary of these negotiating techniques or these laws. And that was, you know, that was not just something that Republican economists thought; it was it was conventional among liberal economists too to believe that minimum wages didn't succeed in in raising the welfare of workers. And this was based on a, on a theoretical model, on an understanding of the world that was abstracted and that looked really great on a blackboard. And, and then something remarkable happened. By the early 1990s, people were beginning to have doubts about how well that model captured the real world. But a, a pair of economists did something truly shocking. They went out and looked for uh, a real world example of a minimum wage law, uh, that uh, a higher minimum wage and how it had worked out. And the state of New Jersey had had modestly raised its minimum wage, and they went and they compared restaurant wages and restaurant employment on, on both sides of the New Jersey, Pennsylvania line. And they wrote what is now a very famous paper in which they reported the startling finding that in the real world, raising the minimum wage had not, in fact, caused all of these disastrous consequences. And, and it kicked off a huge uproar uh, in the economics community. People accused them of just of basically being terrible people, terrible economists, but over time, you know, this finding has been replicated again and again and again. I wouldn't go so far. I mean, obviously, you can raise the minimum wage to a level that would be problematic. If, if you imposed a $100 minimum wage tomorrow, it would put some companies out of business. But, you know, within reasonable tolerances, the idea that any increase in the minimum wage or even a fairly significant increase in the minimum wage is going to put people out of work has just turned out not to be true in practice. And so the, the theoretical models of the economics profession have evolved, at least among some economists, uh, you know, our understanding has evolved and, you know, uh, just as I, I presume my predecessors in the 1980s, you know, went and talked to all the experts and heard the same thing from all of the experts and reached a conclusion that was wrong, but validated by essentially, you know, uh, everyone who they might have talked to you know, we now look around and we have a lot more evidence. We have a much better understanding of how minimum wage laws work. And, and you know, we've taken the measure of the evidence again, and, and we've reached a different
0: conclusion than they did. And the thing that I simply cannot get over is that the economics profession has been around for a very long time. And this issue of what happens when you require companies to pay people a little bit more has to be literally the simplest proposition in economics. And, you know, as I reflect on just the profound uh, failure of the profession to get this right, it's just astounding that the profession, with full confidence, full confidence, unambiguously believed that uh, helping working people would harm working people, for decades
2: i do think it was a terrible mistake and and an embarrassment for the profession that you know is is still hurting us right because workers are the the federal minimum wage you know remains at a very low level by historical standards it gets lower with every passing year because it's fixed in right you know it's a fixed amount and and the purchasing power of that wage declines with each passing year uh and and so we're still living with the consequences of this conviction this convenient conviction, right? I mean, economists were basically telling rich people exactly what they wanted to hear. Correct. Uh, and, and the consequence of that is basically that, you know, workers uh, have lost out for a very long time and continue to lose out in many states across much of the country right up to this moment.
1: I'm wondering Binnya is it your sense that the that the consensus amongst academic economists has flipped uh to the side that the New York Times is on now?
2: So I think that there's still a lot of debate. I don't. I don't think there are any economists left who think that there is a mechanical, you know, that there is this precise mechanical connection where if you raise the minimum wage any amount, uh, you get negative consequences. There's still a lot of debate about how exactly the relationship works, right? How how mm-hmm. far you can raise the wage without, and and you know, there's sort of there's a balance here, right? Like. Some people are making more money, others may be losing their jobs. You can be in a situation in which, you know, you still think the net benefits are positive, even if you think there's some negative effects associated with the change in policy. There's a short-term, long-term issue, right? People who lose right. their jobs immediately may be able to find new better jobs at higher wages in, in a world in which you've raised the minimum wage standard and you're essentially forcing employers to, you know, only use workers who are who are, you know, who they can get a certain amount of value out of. The workers who are pushed out in that model may end up in better jobs elsewhere in the economy, and and so there's a lot of variables in it. But everyone understands that it's a lot more complicated than they used to think. Uh, and some people remain, I think, unduly skeptical about the benefits of minimum wage increases, and others, you know, have have uh, embraced them. But it's important to say that this is just a, a piece of a larger picture here, right? Like this piece is not just about minimum wages; it's about And the same fight has repeated in each of these spaces. It's about the broader spectrum of policies that might drive wages up for workers. And minimum wages may be one of the less controversial pieces of that spectrum. There's other areas in which economists, I think, are are more resistant than than they are around minimum wages.
0: Right. And what's fascinating, of course, uh, and what we devote most of the podcast to is the magical way in which all of these conclusions somehow consistently benefit wealthy people in capital <laughs> right like all of these little heuristics if taken seriously from whatever corner of the economy you may abstract them magically tend to be to the benefit of the rich and the powerful and to the detriment of those who are not whether you're talking about marginal productivity or the economy being being in a pareto optimal equilibrium or what you know whatever it is you know, taxes, ta- you know, tax policy, it's always the same thing, so very consistently. And that consensus, I think, is giving way at a minimum to more skepticism, if not yeah, I mean, right revolt.
2: There's a great quote from John Kenneth Galbraith that I actually have is, uh, in my book. Uh, what is called sound economics is very often what mirrors the needs of the respectably affluent. Yes. Uh, and, and that's <laughs> undoubtedly true, right? Yeah, like,
0: right. Again, you know, one of the reasons we were so excited to have this conversation with you, and uh, the reason that that the editorial, I think, sang for us, is that it so explicitly shows the way in which economics, as a field of study, is so different from the physical sciences, which it seeks to represent itself as or to to mimic. But because economics is mostly social norms and preferences instantiated into these kind of rules, uh, they are always being litigated. And this editorial is just another great example of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I wrote another piece recently about sort of the limitations of economics that that Nick, I think, described on Twitter as too nice to economists. Yeah. And, and <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was. Sorry. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, listen, I mean, it's not it's. It's not physics and when it's presented as physics, it's misleading in ways that are harmful. Yes. So I think economics offers great insights into the world. It's a really useful and powerful way of thinking about a lot of public policy problems and about a lot of sort of human interaction. But you know, you need to understand the limits of the tools that you're using. And when economists treat economics as the only lens or as a universal lens or as an all-powerful lens, it's not just the economists who tend to get into trouble precisely because they're so influential in policymaking, the rest of us end up in trouble, too.
0: That's right. These mistakes are insanely consequential for the lives of individuals as well as the, the political and economic health of the country. It's, you know, it's a really, really big deal.
2: Yeah. Now, it's important to say that, you know, it's not just one policy. And the reason that's important is, you know, imagine a world in which just the minimum wage had been increased. Well, you know, one of the other things that's been going on in recent decades is that employers have learned to exclude a growing share of their workforce from the standard set of protections that sure. apply to ordinary workers, and so you know the gig economy is essentially yeah. you know a scheme to subvert minimum wage laws, among other things, right? Right. Uh, contract relationships, part-time labor. There's a lot of ways in which employers get around these requirements, and so you know I, I think it is it, it's important to keep a, a sort of broad view of all of the ways in which the economy is tilted against workers. Uh, because just changing the minimum wage is not, no. it's not a complete solution.
1: So I'm i am curious, Binya, about what went into the New York Times, the, our paper of record, their editorial board, taking on this issue. Um, in the piece, uh, it, it emphasizes the importance of rewriting our stories. What is the role of an editorial board in, I mean, are you out in front of this? this flip of consensus? Or are you somewhere in the middle? what What's the role of the board in all this?
2: That's a really interesting question. You know, I, I think that we try to uh, speak clearly about the things that we believe and and I don't know that we are as concerned about whether we're in front of it or in the middle of it or you know, where exactly we sit in the parade. these The ideas expressed in this piece, are not entirely original right like these are ideas that you know many people have have held for a while and in that sense we're agreeing with existing opinion Mm -hmm. but at the same time you know i i think that you know the point of this piece is basically to say listen there's a problem and there's a solution the problem in part is not just that the democratic party you know i think to some extent, hasn't framed its economic agenda properly, but that the Democratic Party in general is losing a communications battle over economic policy. Correct. Uh, Conservatives (laughs) have been much more effective and much more successful in telling a simple, untrue, but simple story about how the economy works and convincing voters to rally around it. And so Democrats need to both think about what is our story and also how do we communicate that story? And this is an argument on both fronts, because I think, you know, a lot of a lot of liberal politicians, when you ask them to explain when you ask them to talk about the economy, two things happen. The first is a lot of the rhetoric is about how we help people who uh, have been hurt by the economy or how we sort of work around the economy or how we compensate for the shortcomings of the economy. There's not a lot of focus, not enough focus, in my view, on sort of how do we actually improve the performance of the economy make sure people are, and when I say improve the performance, I don't mean GDP. I mean, make sure that everyone is benefiting from economic growth. Democrats sometimes don't get around to that quickly enough as an issue, I think. and And when they do, the story that they tell is awfully confused and involved. And that's in part because the truth isn't simple. I I don't want to understate that. Like part of what's wrong with the Republican recipe is that it is a simple recipe. And these are complicated questions. Yeah. Uh, But I I, even granting that point, I think that Democrats can do a much better job of articulating a story about how the economy works. And I think the beginning of that story uh, is that a strong economy requires a strong you know, distribution it requires a distribution of income that means that many people are in a position to consume and to spend and and if you have the type of inequality that we have now, that's bad. So a strong economy begins with wage growth. It begins right. with workers having more money in their pockets.
0: That's right. Right. So uh, so
2: so
1: Democrats clearly uh deserve a lot of the blame for what happened. I'm, I'm curious, Binya, when you publish an editorial like this, in your mind, are you aiming this at lawmakers?
2: Yeah. I mean, this piece is, I mean, I think not just at lawmakers, but my hope with a piece like this is that, you know, people in the incoming administration read it, Democratic politicians read it, people who care about, you know, the party's prospects and its purpose read it and and engage with these ideas. Because, you know, yeah, I mean, in the piece we describe, you know, a lot of what the Democratic Party has been in recent decades is basically, you know, the party of kinder, better tax cuts. Right. And, that's not good enough. that That's yeah. not good for the country and And it's not a winning strategy for the party. And I'm not the first person making this case, but my hope is that we're at a moment where people may be able to hear it, yeah, uh, and and to engage it because I just absolutely agree that, you know, the history of the last half century, I mean, my book is basically the story of this, yeah. you know, consensus uh, among the two parties on economic policy you know, and, and, and it's harmful consequences. And, and we need, we really need in the same, I mean, uh, the health of our democracy really requires conflicting ideas, right? You want to have a battle of ideas. You want to have two parties disagreeing about what we need, making their best case. And, and, you know, you see who moves forward. And uh, I I would like a, a stronger opposition to the party of tax cuts.
0: So what advice should we be giving our listeners? What should people do
2: I think that the answer is that people need to understand their self-interest and vote in their self-interest, right? Like you have this phenomenon, the the what's the matter with Kansas phenomenon, where people struggle to understand why it is that conservatives keep voting for these policies. Well, what's the matter with California? Why is it that liberal voters in California keep on electing candidates who do not uh, support economic policies that are ultimately in the interest of the vast majority of Californians? Well, it's in part because people don't know what those policies are and in part because they're not holding politicians accountable for them. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I really do mean this. Like, I'm really it is perplexing to me that in a state like California or like Massachusetts or like, you know, other states where, you know, Democrats have super majorities in the legislature and, and uh, inability to push through the types of policies that that might really help people. That's not happening to the extent that we need it to, and and so I think you know the the challenge for voters is to identify and elect the types of candidates who are who are genuinely committed to producing better economic policy.
1: Yeah. So, so ben, are you going to? Is this a one-off, or is the board going to be uh, addressing this issue in the future?
2: Yeah. So we take seriously, you know, the idea that the institutional voice has continuity, that it has an awareness of what it said before. And, you know, this is uh, important to us. And I think you'll see us continue to speak in these terms about what we want from public policy and what we want. You know, this is the measuring stick in the economy that we think is the right measuring stick for the Biden administration and for Congress. And I think we will continue to hold them to it.
0: Yeah and I, and I think that your that the basic framework that raising median wages is the yardstick by which we should measure much economic policy is dead on.
2: I absolutely would like to see, you know, median income treated in the way that GDP is now treated. I think it's just a much healthier thing for us to focus on as yeah. a society.
0: We always ask our guests why do you do this work?
2: I think it's important. I think, you know, I, I believe that a better understanding of economics and better economic policy is really important to improve, you know, the life of Americans and the opportunities of Americans. And so my hope is that, you know, you write clearly and you speak loudly and, and hopefully you get some people to listen.
0: Well, thank you again for joining us. Yeah. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, and we'll talk soon.
1: So if you want more from Binya Applebaum and and uh, a little bit more about his book, The Economist's Hour, also in our show notes, we will provide a link to a previous episode yeah. where we interviewed Binya about his book.
0: Yeah. And so I think if there was any addendum I could make to that uh, New York Times editorial, it would have been to fold in the RAND study data to characterize the distance we must go to get working and middle-class people caught back up. Right. Uh, because it's one thing to say, we should focus on wages, that uh, when people earn more, that the economy is strengthened uh, by that, not weakened. But it's it's entirely different to say, and we should raise the median full-time earners uh, salary or income from 50K to 90 or 100K. And if we do that, then we'll be back on track. And I think today it's really important for folks to understand how great the distance is that we must travel to get people back whole to where they once were. Right. You know, one of the ways that we could get to, um, you know, collapsing inequality or at least controlling it is, you know, one of my favorite ideas. What I would do is I would index the minimum wage to the maximum wage which is to say I would index the minimum wage to the after-tax income of the top 1%. And, you know, that's a really nifty way of tying the fortunes of the entire country together. So if those hedge fund dudes in New York want to pay themselves 500 million bucks a year or whatever it is, good on them. (laughs) The next year, the minimum wage would rise, you know, a couple of $3 and everyone would be better off. And I think that you know we've got to find a way to connect the fortunes of all Americans in ways that makes us all feel like when the country does well, we we all do well together.
1: Right. And and while that may strike some listeners as unfeasible, um, uh, either politically or or technically, you know it's important to point out that in a sense the minimum wage was tied to yeah. the no, incomes was. of the top earners for decades, yeah. that, that incomes rose at all levels of the distribution. And this is one of the things that that RAND report points out. Uh, from 1947 to in 1975, incomes broadly right. rose uh, with GDP growth. Across all distributions. It's only since 1975 that we severed incomes for 90% of Americans from the economy of the whole and allowed almost all of the benefits to be captured by those at the top. So, well, there was not an index that said that, the, you know, we did not index the minimum wage to top CEO pay, in effect,
0: that's how the economy worked but finally goldie you know that the thing that comes to me most forcefully as a consequence of that conversation with binya is the catastrophic failure of economics as a profession to be in a profession that purports to be a science to be objective to be fact based and to watch a transformation around what has to be the simplest proposition in the field, right? Which is Mm -hmm. what happens when companies are required to pay people a little bit more, right? Like this incredibly simple, observable thing to go from a world where people were absolutely convinced that there was, as Binia put it, a mechanical relationship between the amount you had to pay and the number of jobs that existed to realizing that no such thing Obtains, And then in fact, you can pay people a lot more and not only won't jobs disappear, but in fact, there may be more jobs. It's just such a failure. This This would be like physicists still arguing over what happens when you drop a heavy rock and a light rock at the same time out of a tall building, right? And people do not argue about that anymore. This issue around the minimum wage is that basic. Yeah and I would say Nick that the
1: failure goes even deeper. Some of the pushback we get from economists is that oh of course we understand this we know that uh you know these are just models and uh we know everything it's not actually an equilibrium system and you know we're just creating these models that help to get a better idea for how the economy works but what they have been if that's true what they have been a absolutely oblivious to is the impact that they have on the public at large, on our policymakers, and on our elected officials, and often in the past on our editorialists, because they have told this story. And even now that the consensus has changed, they continue to tell this story in the Econ One book, which is as far as most people ever get in their economics training.
0: You know, the thing is, and I know I know this sounds like we're just being sourpusses, but-
1: And we are. It,
0: well, okay, but here's <laughs> the thing. That proposition that when wages rise, jobs fall can be traced to at least a $25 trillion transfer of wealth from working people to capital and rich people. The degree to which that idea damaged the social, political, and economic fabric of our country is incalculable. You know, in fact, like if you run this thought experiment of how someone in academia could harm this many millions of people another way, other than inventing a bioweapon, I can't think of a thing, (laughs) right? Like, honestly, like if you really were out to hurt tens of millions of innocent, hardworking people animating this proposition that if we pay them more, it will harm them has to be at the top of your list.
1: So, so Nick, uh, I'd say our suggestion to our listeners is to read the piece Pass it around, email it to your friends, and email it to the editorial boards at your own local newspaper. Exactly. Uh, Anytime you see them uh, touting the old uh, higher wages kills jobs bullshit.
0: Trickle down myths. Absolutely.
4: This is Annie. And I'm Ashley. We're producers here at Pitchfork Economics.
3: We're going to take a tour of editorials on the minimum wage from the New York Times Opinion Board over the last 100 years. And remember, this is not meant to lambast the New York Times or the editorial board, but the board has always been an accurate reflection of consensus among economists. And interestingly, it's a really great way to track the history of misbeliefs about the minimum wage in our country. So here we go. The first editorial about an American minimum wage appeared in 1913, and they wrote,
4: There are a few fairly certain effects that will follow a minimum wage, which are not generally recognized by the advocates of that humanely intended measure, and which deserve careful attention. This piece
3: contained themes that would be common for the board throughout the next 50 years. Fears like the minimum wage would leave some workers who are currently employed without employment, including, quote,
4: The incompetent, the shiftless, the lazy, and the shirks.
3: And other themes still popular today, like the rights of an individual to work for any right that they want, the assertion that businesses will just break the law anyway, that lazy people will get paid to not work, and that it will cost too much to administer. In 1937, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the right of the state of Washington and subsequently other states to set a statewide minimum wage, and the country found itself in a national debate over a federal minimum wage. A piece from this year marks the first use of what would become a favorite theme of the board, which will sound familiar to a lot of people. What works in New York City may not work in Mississippi. In 1937, they wrote,
4: The danger of fixing a flat rate without special investigation is that it may disorganize certain industries, cause bankruptcies, and throw out of work the very persons it is designed to help. If a flat rate is dangerous in a state law, it would be immensely more so in any federal enactment.
3: At that time, 17 states had minimum wage legislation, but only two or three had a flat blanket minimum wage. The Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938 established a federal minimum wage, and in 1950, the board wrote,
4: None of the dire results predicted have materialized from the 1938 Act. And by 1955? The 1950 raise had no marked effect on either unemployment or business mortality, in spite of the dire predications of opponents of the change.
3: But economists widely, and therefore the board, still weren't convinced about the merits of a minimum wage. In 1977, the board published back-to-back pieces claiming
4: A higher minimum wage offers no remedy to the problem of low wages. And Some poor people would benefit at the expense of other poor people. In 1977, they wrote Since the Depression, liberals have favored higher minimum wages while conservatives have resisted. But this debate has become sterile. Whatever the merits of minimum wages in the past, they make little economic sense today. And
3: 1987 saw probably our favorite headline, which is the right minimum wage, zero dollars. Closely followed by another from 1987, don't raise the minimum wage.
4: Very clear. A quote from that piece. There's a virtual consensus among economists that the minimum wage is an idea whose time has passed. The idea of using a minimum wage to overcome poverty is old, honorable, and fundamentally flawed. It's time to put this hoary debate behind us and find a better way to improve the lives of people who work very hard for very little.
3: Well, the hoary debate continued, but starting in the 1990s, the consensus changed. In 1993, economists David Card and Alan Krueger published a landmark study comparing fast food employment in New Jersey and Pennsylvania before and after a rise in New Jersey's minimum wage in 1992. The study disproved the conventional wisdom at the time that raising wages killed jobs. They found that actually, it didn't. The board started countering claims of lost jobs due to minimum wage increases by saying that the data clearly shows only a minimal impact on job losses that are always offset by large gains in spending. And as the economy improved, the board called for higher wages to reflect the economic
4: boom for the working class. In 1996, they wrote, There is a strong case for raising the minimum wage by a modest amount. Will low-paid workers lose their jobs if employers must pay higher wages? Yes, but there is widespread agreement among economic studies that the impact would be very small. The benefits of a higher minimum wage would be substantial.
3: So you can see consensus moving in the right direction here, although some bad ideas still lingering around. Here's something from 1999.
4: With the economy strong and the unemployment rate at its lowest in more than 25 years, Democrats in Congress are right to push for an increase in the minimum wage. An increase now will boost income for the poorest workers without the danger of creating more unemployment.
3: By 2014, the country was deep into the fight for 15, and the board went so far as to call itself out for its past iffy positions, and they ran a series of op-eds that made the case for higher wages. In 2014, they said,
4: People who work full-time should not be poor.
3: And in 2015...
4: It's hard to overstate the extent to which work no longer results in a decent paycheck and a rising standard of living in this country. The portion of the economic pie that goes to working people is currently near the smallest on record in data going back to 1947. Similarly, the gap between worker pay and labor productivity has widened since the 1970s. The best corrective is to raise the federal minimum wage.
3: And most recently, the board has called for a federal increase of the minimum wage to $15 per hour and completed its journey towards truth with its gloriously spot-on op-ed in November of this year, titled, Let's Talk About Higher Wages. Here's some of our favorite parts of that piece.
4: The nation needs a better story about the drivers of economic growth.
3: Raising the wages of American workers ought to be the priority of economic policymakers.
4: Higher wages can stoke the sputtering engine of economic growth.
3: Workers who are paid more can spend more. The rich spend a smaller share of what they earn, and though they lend to the poor, the overall result is still
4: less spending and consumption. The nation's laws, social norms, and patterns of daily life all have been revised in recent decades to facilitate the suppression of wage growth.
3: But you don't just have to take it from us. All of these pieces and more throughout the last 100 years are linked in the show notes. And of course, if you're looking for pointers on how you can talk about the minimum wage, we recommend starting around 2015.
0: In the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we get to talk about a super exciting and relevant topic, which is canceling student debt with economist Feneba Otto.
3: Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.